How's everybody doing this evening? I want to I wanna pray. Can, I just want to pray. I'm going to ask everybody to stand, please. And I want to ask you if you would join somebody's hand next to you. And uh, I just want to spend a moment in prayer. And uh, grab, grab the person's hand, and let's just really pray. The Bible says that we enter into his gates with thanksgiving and praise. And we just, we just thank you right now. And I want you to pray with me, guys. I want you to just begin to lift up your voice and just begin to thank the Lord in your own way. Jesus, we just thank you tonight. We just welcome you into this place tonight. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, in this place. We welcome you, Jesus, Lord. The Bible says that you are the king of all kings, that you are the Lord of hosts, the commander of the armies of heaven. Lord, that you are the lion and both the lamb, that you are the bread of life that sustains us and keeps us going. Jesus, you are the morning star that guides our feet. It says your word is like a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Lord, it says that you'll never leave us, that you'll never forsake us, Lord. Even in our ever-present help, you're there in our time of need. The Bible says that you will come to us when we call your name. And so, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you are the king of kings. And right now, Lord, I just ask, God, that you would just push off, just release any burden or hindrance that has been carried in here today from the cares of this life. Lord, the word says, cast your cares on me, for I care for you. And so, Jesus, we just ask that you would just release your spirit in this place. Wisdom and revelation come. We invite you right now, spirit of wisdom and revelation come in according to the knowledge of Jesus. God, I just speak light into the room right now. I speak light into darkness. I speak light into confusion. I speak clarity, Father. I thank you, Lord. Clarity right now. Father, we speak strength to the weary. Strength to the weary right now. Isaiah 40 said that there is an anointing that empowers the weak, that gives strength to the weary, that even young men, even the youth, even the young adults will grow weary and tired. Even their natural energy will fail. But those who wait on the Lord, those who help in God, those who set their face before Jesus will renew their strength. They will soar on eagle's wings. They will soar. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. The Lord said, I am with you. Though a thousand will fall to your left and a ten thousand to your right, it will not come nigh your dwelling. Open up, you ancient gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, so that the king of glory may come in. Who is that king of glory? He is the Lord mighty, the Lord strong and mighty in battle. His name is faithful and true. He's riding on a horse. His eyes are like flames of fire, his head like wool, his voice like many waters. He sounds a trumpet. He burns through sin. He burns through iniquity. He's holy and righteous. There is none like him. There is none before him. There is none after him. He is the alpha. He is the omega. You are the king of kings. Somebody give him some praise. Thank you, Lord. Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That's who you are. That's who you are. That's who you are, Jesus. That's who you are. Our champion. Woo! Our champion. I'm, I'm going to pray a little bit more. Our champion. You're our champion. Victorious warrior. Mm, mm, mm. Better than Mike Tyson. Better than Evander Holyfield. Better than Buster Douglas. Lord, you are our champion. You're the victorious warrior. Sin cannot stand. Death couldn't hold you. Herod didn't know what to do with you. Pilate couldn't figure you out. Mm. Jesus. Lord, we just give you glory. We give you glory. Lord, I just said the Bible says commit your ways to the Lord and you shall succeed. Father, we come before you tonight. Lord, we, we're coming to launch a new series on rebuilding David's tabernacle. Lord, that you put in our hearts. But Lord, I put it before you. I can't do anything without you. We can't do anything, Lord. We just commit it before you. Lord, I ask that you would honor every word, that you would honor every song, every sound that is spoken over the next month. Father, I pray that you would breathe weight on the words. Let them not be empty or void, but let them seek 
deep into the recesses of our soul and our hearts. God, I pray for revelatory, revelatory information and transformation, God. Father, I pray that you would, Lord, that you would show us what this is all about. Lord, that you are in, we are in a day right now where you are rebuilding David's tabernacle. You prophesy through the word of God. Amos chapter 9 verse 11. In the latter days, in the last days, in the end times, I will rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David. I will restore its ruins. I will repair its breaches that all of humanity would seek my name in my face. God, we thank you that we are in a reformation right now where you are restoring worship into the earth. And so, God, I pray that you would just guide us, Lord. Guide us, Holy Spirit. Take complete control. Whatever you want to do, Father, help us now to be sensitive. Lock us in together like a family. Lock us in, Lord. Help us to feel the Spirit and be led by the Spirit as we bring forth the Word tonight, Lord. Help us to be sensitive, Lord, like the dove that flies. Help us to be sensitive, and we just thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I, I'm sorry, but I have been fired up all day. Woo! Jesus. Mm, thank you, Lord. I'm all, I don't even know where I'm at now. Thank you, Lord. I want to welcome everybody. Amen. So we are going to, I'm excited. We're going to launch tonight a series on rebuilding David's tabernacle. After, after we did the, the teaching on Moses' tabernacle, the significance of that, um, I felt that it was just a really good, good series and good teaching that went really well. And afterwards, I told Pastor Tom, I was praying, I said, you know, it would be a great follow-up if, if we could do a rebuilding David's tabernacle and talk about the significance of David's tabernacle, which a lot of people don't know about. And um, Pastor Tom said, absolutely, go for it. So I feel like it fits in well and, uh, in the timing that we're in. So... We're going to be talking about that. Now, little survey, quick survey. Who, it's okay, excuse me, it's okay. Who in here has never heard of David's Tabernacle or really is not familiar with what that is? Raise your hand. It's okay, raise your hand. We've got a few people. How many feel like they have a pretty good understanding of David's Tabernacle? You got a few more? How many have a, think they have a really firm understanding, really good, all right, I really get it, David's Tabernacle? Damn, we got a couple. All right. All right. So y'all are so, going to be the ones just dancing all over the place. Come on. Wow. Undignified. So, uh, but yeah, we're, we're going to journey together over these next uh, four Wednesdays. Uh, the fifth Wednesday this, this month, but instead of a teaching night, we're going to just have a radical blowout worship night. We're going to get Lacey's here. We're going to get a full team worshipers up here, and we're just going to go for it and just worship Jesus. Amen? Amen. But, um... It's going to be good. So it said that when David brought the ark back to Jerusalem, there was a procession of all the tribes, all the tribes gathered in one voice, losing it before the Lord and before heaven. And could you imagine the rumble that was going through the environment and the atmosphere, man? Woo! And so that, that's just the beginning. And, and Rick Pino, you notice in the beginning, he started to prophesy. I can hear the sound of revolution. I can hear the sound. Like he was prophesying in the, God was showing him something in the spirit. And he spoke it into the natural. And it created this open heaven to just be free. <laughs> hey. Come on. Amen. <laughs> we can do it. And uh, one other note on that. Just kind of, and we're going to cover a lot of this stuff in the next few classes. Especially next week. Ne or next Wednesday and the Wednesday after, we're going to do a two-part class just on the infrastructure of David's tabernacle alone and how he actually assigned and positioned over 48,000 musicians in rotation of teams that gave Jesus worship and adoration day and night, night and day. And uh, so it, it's amazing. Years too, right? For almost four, 40 years, David's lot, Tabernacle ran. And so we're just giving some, like, little, let's try to schedule. Yeah. And it has some administrative people in place. Yeah. We, we bless all the administrators. Thank you, Lord. But, uh, but we're going to cover and dip into a lot of those things. But tonight, I really wanted to hit something that 
Um, this topic's been dear to my heart. I've actually studied it for years and, and researched it. Just really incredible. But I, I've seen something in the last month or so that has literally blown me away. And I, I, I've actually been so excited tonight, <laughs> this whole day, because I've been like locked in, containing it. But uh, I, I want to share some insights that I have never seen, that I've never heard seen, um, shared about any teaching of David's Tabernacle. It's really, really hard to find some teaching on David's Tabernacle. As a matter of fact, one of the, I will say this, and we're going we, um, to be talking about this guy's book next week. Um, a lot of it was inspired uh, next week's class by a guy named David Fritch. And if you're watching, David, bless you, bro. Um, he wrote a book recently called Enthroned, uh, Building God's Kingdom to Earth Through Unceasing Worship and Prayer. And uh, in there, he has some incredible insights about David's tabernacle that I've never seen before. So that's been incredible to read. So I encourage uh, that book is called Enthroned by David Fritch. It's a great resource uh, on it. But let's see. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Amos chapter 9, verse 11. And what we want to cover tonight, and just bear with me, you know, some classes are practical. Some are, you know, you want to be practical and, and, and things like that. And some classes, they're just more theoretical and revelatory by nature. Do you know what I mean? And so I feel like tonight's class is going to be more like that. So I want you guys to hang with me. We're going to read a lot of, a lot of scriptures, but I feel like there's a great revelatory uh, release on it to tie it all in together to, to really illustrate the importance of what God's doing in the earth right now. Amos 9-11. Can you, can you read it? Got it right here. Yes. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be. Okay. Also, in Acts, and you don't have to turn it, but you can write it down. In Acts 15, 16, James quotes this prophecy after the upper room explosion, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the Apostle Paul is willing the Gentiles to the Lord. And when they're having the counsel of how to reconcile what's happening, James says, this must be what Amos prophesied. In the last days, I will return and build the fallen tent of David, that mankind will seek my face. So what does this mean? I want to keep referring to this prophecy over the class because this is our prophetic connection point to us. So we're not just talking about history. This is a prophetic promise that God was going to rebuild in the last days in our generation. And that's why also we want to show the clip just to give an idea. That's just one meeting that it's really happening. This, this whole concept of day and night prayer, of worship and prayer unending to the Lord, radical, undignified worship is really catching fire around the world right now. And so we're in that process. But it's just not about worship and prayer. There's so much more. So we're going we're gonna to dive into that a little bit more. Okay, I also got kind of a PowerPoint slide just to give a little visuals to kind of keep track. If you have a handout, we did have handouts out in the foyer. I'll kind of go with there. With that, there's three points that I just kind of want to stick on the background. Um, I want to share a lot about the background about David's tabernacle. When, when we think of David's tabernacle, we think of when David got the ark and brought it back to Jerusalem, right? That's what we always gravitate to. And those two passages, we'll get to them a little bit later, are in 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles. But there is a huge connection point, a, a pre-story, if you will, that really sets the groundwork of why it was so important and why it was so profound that David would go and get the ark. So as we do that, now how many were here for the Tabernacle of Moses uh, teaching we did? Awesome. I want to pick back up where we left. Is that cool? A lot of us are very familiar that the Tabernacle of Moses was in the desert. But where did it go after that? When, when, when they got into the promised land in the book of Joshua, where's the tabernacle of Moses? It gets a little, it gets a little bit more cloudy, right? There's not much, much, uh, much information around it, isn't it? And then what happens to the tabernacle of Moses all through up until David's reign and David's tabernacle? Well, what about Moses' tabernacle? And what is all that going on? So I want to journey us through that step real quick. If you hit that next slide. I want to go to the uh, first thing, the progression of the tent of Moses. Now, when they, you can go to the next one, when they went to, um, 
That was the tabernacle, right, that we talked about last time in the series. When they were out in the wilderness, we know that they crossed over into the Jordan, into the land of Israel. And if you go to one more, they went and they took the land. Now, if you read Joshua chapter 19, verse, excuse me, Joshua chapter 18, verse 1. I'm going to read that real quick. Let me go there. In Joshua chapter 18, verse 1, we see it. When they're taking the land and they're distributing the land, it says, The whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh. Everybody say Shiloh. And set up the tent of meeting there. The country was brought under their control, but there were still seven Israelite tribes who had not yet received their inheritance. So that tells us that the tabernacle of Moses after the desert was set up in Shiloh in Israel. It was under the tribe of Benjamin, I believe. And it set at Shiloh for quite some time. 369 years to be exact. Isn't that a long time? It's a long time. So all the festivals, all the feasts, all the regular sacrifices that God commanded Moses to carry over in the nation was happen, happened at Shiloh. Now if you notice, what is different about this photograph than one in the desert? Do you notice any differences? There's kind of a building there, isn't it? Now you see the covering, the ram skin, the skin's covers that was in the tent. But you got to think, it had been there so long. I mean, 369 years is a long time in the elements, in the sun, and wind, and rain, and, and all those things. So after a long period of time, they actually started building doors in it. And there's a few reference of that in Shiloh. So I thought that was really interesting. But the tabernacle went to Shiloh. Um, after Shiloh, just kind of a skip through, and we don't have to go there, but I just put some references during King Saul's reign, because after Joshua and the book of Judges, it stays at Shiloh, what happens to the tent of Moses? We're going to talk about it a little bit later. There was a major battle with the Philistines and Israelites. The ark is captured, the tabernacle of Moses, because they come and they ransack Shiloh. The Philistines do. The tabernacle of Moses is broken down and distributed to a place called Nob. Who has ever heard of Nob in the Bible? Well, who, who, who has a remembering connection point about Nob? What happened at Nob? Very close. A lot of people got killed at Nob. But there was a guy named King Saul who ran after another guy named David. David fled to Nob where, who were there? The priests of the Lord. So the tabernacle was set up in Nob. And we'll get that in a little bit. After Nob, because Saul kills the priest, it's broken down yet again. And then it finally moves to a place called Gibeon. It's at Gibeon when David becomes king. So the tent, and we'll go a little bit, track this a little bit further, but I want to see this parallel. The tent of Moses stays at Gibeon. It goes from Shiloh to Nob, and it goes from Nob to Gibeon. And it stays at Gibeon for quite some time. The ark, however, is separated from it. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit next. All right, now if you have your Bibles, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Okay, who knows of the story about Eli and two sons? All right, here's some things that I never could connect. And we have to understand this kind of as a foundational framework of how important it was of the building of uh, David's tabernacle. And this is what I want to convey in the class. If this prophecy from Amos is true, that there, in our generation there's going to be a rebuilding of this crazy worship, this crazy movement of worship and prayer that would literally, I believe, hasten the return of Jesus, then the conditions preceding it will also be evident. Do you catch what I'm saying? So the conditions prior to David's tabernacle are also going to be evident in our generation. And we're going to, we're going to see that here. So in 1 Samuel, um, Eli and his two sons. Now Eli... If you know your Bible, he was one of the judges. He was the 13th judge, in fact. Now, he had two boys, and they, they weren't too good. In fact, them boys were scoundrels. They were rotten. That's what the Bible said. They were scoundrels. And they were uh, Phineas and, and Hophni. I can never say their name right. What is it, Pastor Tom? Hophni and Phineas. And these two guys were wicked. Now, 
Beside being a judge, Eli was also high priest. So if he was high priest, he was from what tribe? Levites, Moses and Aaron. Because that tribe contained the bloodline and the revelation of the priesthood. So his two boys were guilty of two accounts. I don't want to go into it just for the sake of time. But in 1 Samuel, you can read this, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Basically, here's two points. The, the, the two priests, Eli's son, were guilty of basically taking the offering by force. So when people would come to give the offering, they would take the choice offering first rather than them boiling it and, and, and giving it and then giving them the leftover. They choose what they wanted first. And then if the person kind of said, no, that's not how it goes. I need to give my whole offering. They said no, and then they took it by force. Ooh. And that's not good in the Lord's eyes. You can't take the offering by force. And not only that, you can't pick and choose where you want to minister. Ooh. That's hard sometimes, ain't it? Especially when it's like going, getting real good. You want to be in the middle of it. But then sometimes the Lord sends you to places, and he assigns you to places where the fire ain't burning. And there's a lot of stuff going around. <laughs> but you have to be faithful. And you have to, you have to stay, stay there. Well, these guys had a trouble with that. The second thing that they had a trouble with was women. They were having sex with women other than their wives, the women at the entrance of the tent. So there's a lot of these things going on. Now, I'm just kind of paraphrasing, right? So this gets back to Eli, their daddy, who's the high priest. And he, he comes to them. And the Bible says he, he actually rebukes them and says, you can't be doing this. This isn't right, right? But the sons, they don't listen to him, and they ignore him, and they keep on going on. The point is, both Eli and his sons were guilty. They were guilty. They both were stepping into places where they shouldn't. And what happens? God sends a man. Now, here's a critical point to this story in its connection with David's tabernacle. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. Now, I want to read this um, in 1 Samuel 2, verse 27. It says, Now a man of God, we don't know his name. He had no beginning and no end. We don't know who he is. But a man of God came to Eli and said, this is what the Lord said. Did I not clearly reveal myself? Now, I want you guys to catch this because it's very important. It's deep. Did I not say that I would reveal myself to your father's house? When they were in Egypt under Pharaoh, I chose your father. Who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? Who's Eli? Is he talking about Eli's actual father, or is he talking about a little bit deeper? Moses and Aaron. When I chose your father out of my tribes of my Israel to be my priest, to go to my altar to burn incense, I want you to really highlight this, and to wear the ephod in my presence. I also gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. Now, why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your children, your sons, more than me by fattening yourself with the choosiest parts of the offering made by the people of Israel? The Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and your father's house would minister to me before ever, before ever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Now listen carefully. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. For the time is coming, and I will cut short the strength of your house and your father's house so that, listen now, there will not be an old man, because this is all going to come back. There, there will not be an old man in your family line. And you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good's going to be done in Israel, in your family line, however, there will not even be an old man. Every one of you, every one of you that I did not cut off from my altar will be spared only to blind your eyes with tears, to grieve your heart, and the descendants, your descendants, will die in the prime of life. He is prophesying. I mean, this is a hard word. This is a hard word. But he is saying to Eli, who is the judge, 
who is the governor, who is the high priest, who is at the top of the food chain, and saying, your days are numbered. And not only are your days numbered, but your bloodline is numbered. And now there is a prophecy against your house. There's a word against your house. So guess what happens? I think we know the story. Well, you go into chapter 4. Just going to walk me through the narrative here. The Philistines get cranked up. They're getting wound up. They're smelling blood. I'm going to tell you what, the enemy can smell blood. When, it's, when the camp is weak, the enemy starts smelling blood. So the Philistines come over. Mm. They come over and they fight the Israelites. 4,000 of them die. Now, the Israelites, again paraphrasing, basically have an elders meeting and said, we're going to get whooped by these Philistines. There's only one thing that we can do to save Israel. That's go get the ark and take it out of the holy place where it's been for 369 years. And let's take it to battle because our fathers used to say that when they marched it before the army, God would strike them down. And what did they do? They took the ark of God and they went into the battle. I got to read this now. Go to chapter 4. Listen what happens. Chapter 4, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 5. When the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp, Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting? When they learned that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. And God has come into their camp. They said, we're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Now look at verse 9. But they rally up the Philistines. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought the Israelites and were defeated. Every man fled to his tent. The slaughter, so great. I want you to highlight this. We're going to come back to it. Israel lost 30,000 men. Foot soldiers. The ark was captured. Eli and his two sons, Haphini and Phinehas, died on the spot. Skip down to verse 18. When he, this servant, mentioned that the ark of God had been captured, his sons were dead, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. Hit the next slide, Gregory. I want to show you this slide. There's the ark being taken, and then go one more. Right there. That's Eli coming off the throne. It's very prophetic. Here's the last verse. Now, in verse 21, one of these priest's sons had a wife. She was in labor. Well, she wasn't in labor. She was pregnant. But after hearing the death of her father-in-law, after hearing the death of her husband, the death of her brother-in-law, and the capture of the ark, she was thrown into premature labor. Verse 21, the boy was born. It said, and the, she named the boy Inkabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the capture of the ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel. The ark has been captured. My goodness. I've never understood how important this story is in the in the in the timeline of David's tabernacle. This story is actually an epoch. It is one of those benchmarks in Scripture, and I'm going to tell you why. Let's reel back a little bit. These two guys, the, the sons, I did a lot of research. I never knew this, but according to Jewish history, Eli had already made reservations to pass the office of the high priest to Phineas. When they were going to come back from the battle, because they were so sure God was going to fight on their behalf with the ark, they were going to actually have a ceremony and pass the office of high priest to his wicked son, Phineas. God said, uh-uh. Not only that, the baby, according to Jewish history, what many Jews believe, that the baby was born at seven months. Seven months. Premature. So prophetically, what is this the Lord saying to us? This is, I think, a good sobering. <laughs> Keep us in line. They mishandled the revelation of God. 
they mishandled three things. They mishandled the presence because they wanted to use it for their own gain. They mishandled the priesthood. And they brought shame and contempt on it. And they mishandled purity and brought defilement into their entire bloodline. Eli was guilty of a little bit more different. What was his fault? He, he failed to correct it. He rebuked them. But he stopped it there. He should have took them out of position. But he failed to do that. Why? Because he loved his children. He had a love, but it was misguided. There's a lot of parents... It's a lot of people that have love for loved ones and family members and children, but it can easily become misguided. And misguided love can lead to an abortion of what God wants to do in your life. So when we mishandle the presence and we mishandle the priesthood, the revelation, do you hear what I'm saying? You're going to be a kingdom of priests. They mishandle the revelation of who they were. And when we do that, it leads to us birthing premature ministries and premature decisions and premature career choices and decisions. Inkabod in the glory. Oh, I'm going to, can I just, well, I'm so sorry. I'm trying to do teaching. I got to preach a little bit tonight. Jesus. Woo! I'm going to take the flip-flops off. Ah, right, God. Just want to say one more minute, Amber, and I want Amber to jump in. I'm skipping all over, but I want to really hit this because I feel the Lord right here. Just follow with me. When the ark was captured in the Philistine territory, that's a bad day in Israel. So now the ark is gone because there's a lot of scripture. We don't have time. The ark goes into the Philistine hands. They bring it to their temple, right? Dagon. Dagon falls over. They don't know what to do with it. They send it back. They go back into Israel at a place called Beth Beth. Beth Shion, Shehan, I think it is. And it goes to this place back into Israel. They offering, they Philistines send offerings on it. And then people get curious and they look in the ark. Israelites. So God says he struck 70. 70 of them down. He struck 70 of them down. What do you think that did in the community? Just think about that. Fear of the Lord returned, didn't it? <laughs> Fear of the Lord returned. And you know what happened? All of a sudden, the ark was like, man, I don't know if I want to go near that thing anymore. It became taboo. It would be like the baptism of the Holy Ghost in the Baptist church. Do you hear what I'm saying? That's taboo. Don't go over there. <laughs> People get damaged and hurt and die. So we just leave it alone. Slave it until somebody had the call to bring it back. So it sat there for a long time. Now, one more thing. Go with me to 2 Samuel. I know I'm rapping, but this is really good. 2 Samuel 6. I, I want to begin to tie this part together. When David brings the art back, many of you know this story. He makes a mistake, doesn't he? He, I'm going to skip down here. When, the, when they got it, they, they decided to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And the Philistines had put it on a cart, and they brought it back, right? We're going to get that in a minute. But look what it said here. It says, they, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Adonadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Adonabab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. Now David and the whole house were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. With songs, harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, right, we know this, reached out his hand, took hold of the ark of God, and because the ark stumbled, the Lord's anger... My goodness. The Lord's anger burned 
against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore, God struck him down and he died beside the ark of the Lord. David was distraught. The ark is parked at Obed-Edom's house. We'll get that in a second. But this is one I want to show. God hit me really hard this afternoon with this. From the time the ark is captured to this point in the story is over 70 years. Death is surrounding the ark. Read about it. Death. The death of Eli, the death of his sons, the death of the 70, the death of Uzzah. Why? You have to go back to Inkabod. Inkabod in Hebrew means disgrace. Disgrace. The glory has departed. Listen, the grace hasn't just lifted, it's departed. Do you hear what I'm saying? The grace is not just lifted. It is completely gone. Because the grace was gone from the ark, there was no priest to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Without the sprinkling of blood, there's only the law in the box. The law brings death wherever it goes, but grace brings life. Oh, if we only catch what David did when he brought that ark back. It had departed. God wasn't on that ark anymore, basically. That, the, the presence like it was had completely left. It was gone. Now, that leads us into Saul's leadership. We know King Saul rose to throne. But for 42 years, this man was king of Israel. And for that 42 years, he never made an approach to redeem the ark. Isn't that unbelievable? And so the ark from Kareth Jerem, it stayed there for 20 years, under 42 years of Saul's leadership. It's a good chronological guess of about 70 plus years that the ark remained in the Kareth Jerem area before 2 Samuel 6 when David brought it up. Now, hang with me. Think about it. 70 years. Now, you understand how David could make a mistake, don't you? 70 years their history had been lost. 70 years the way to bring it up was lost. 70 years they didn't know how to bring the ark in. They didn't know that there was a divine order, a divine protocol. 70 years. He's doing the best he can. But it rests at Obed-Edom's house. Now, when it comes to Obed-Edom's house... There's grace. It returns slightly, <laughs> and his whole house is blessed. And why is that? Why is that, Emily? Because Obed-Edom was from the Levitical priesthood. He was from the order. Um, he was from the Levites and was from the order of gatekeepers, whose duties included watching over the ark in the sacred tent. He was a Levite. Now, I want to show you something in the Word. Go to 1 Chronicles 13. The same story is repeated, but with more detail. Excuse me, 1 Chronicles 15. 15 verse 11. Hmm. Mm -mm. I said then David... Summoned Zadok and Abathar the priests and Uriel and Isaiah and Joel, Shemaiah, Elel, Amminadab, and the Levites. And the Levites. Now listen to what David said. He, he's really realizing what his mistake was. The ark is at Obed-Edom's house for three months. And let me tell you about Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom was what? He was a Levite. But what else was he? He was a gatekeeper. He was a gatekeeper. Of the south gate. Of the south gate. Later in the story when he's positioned, David positions Obed-Edom as the south gate. That means when you were a gatekeeper, you held a position of trust. And you had a responsibility to close doors and open the right ones. That's why the presence had to rest at the gate before it could come in. Come on now. 
Obed-Edom. So here he is. He's realizing, I think somewhere in the story, David returned to the scroll of Moses. Moses had written some scrolls here. And he found out how that ark was supposed to bring up. And look what he says. Verse 13, it was because of you, the Levites, did not bring it up for the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the proper way. NIV says the prescribed way. So the priests and Levites consecrated. Woo! I love that word. Consecrated themselves. They consecrated themselves. Well, we're, we're forgetting almost what that means in our generation. They consecrated themselves to the Lord. They were set apart, not legalism. They were set apart, not self-righteousness. They were set apart, abandoned, called to live to a higher standard. It, there's an approach when you bring back the ark. There's an approach when you carry the presence. And it says, because we didn't do it in the prescribed way. So guess what the word prescribed is in Hebrew? Ruach. Ruach. Who knows what the Ruach is? It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God. Because you didn't bring it up in the Spirit. You see, what's on that cart? Oxen. I heard a guy preach this one time. I thought it was so good for the Lord Jesus. But it made a lot of sense to me. It's challenging, but it's true. He said, when they brought that ark, two oxen, and he said, what's on that cart? He said, big boards and big wheels. He said, too many times in the church, oh, we allow the big boards and the big wheels and the CEOs try to turn it to carry the presence. He said, but it has to come from the Levites and the priests. Oh, what a hammer right in the heart. There's one who sits on a board here at the church. I'm about to say, I hope it's still got a job. I think it's good, though. I think it strengthens us, keeps us humble. But it's good. It's, it's good to remember that, that there is a divine way. There is a, a divine protocol of how to carry this heart cup. They mishandled the revelation. Eli, they mishandled it. So now I, I want to go, let's go back one more time to 2 Samuel. For our remaining time, what I want to do now is kind of really break down and kind of connect some prophetic keys, insights that I believe. Um, why, why did David do the things that he did? That's how I approach the passage. I asked the Lord, you know, the Bible has a meaning for everything, right? Even the little things. And so, you know, you can get carried away, but a lot of times I, I like to know what they mean. So when David brought this art back in 2 Samuel 6, there's really five things that he did that I believe set the framework and the foundation for the building of day and night prayer, as we'll see later. And I believe this same framework is in play today. We've actually been a part of it, this church, in some areas, some instances. We'll share some stories on that. But what I want to hit on is uh, David, David made intercession. Intercession is the foundation for David's tabernacle. And there's different levels of it. You see, it's all about restoration. I'm going to restore the fallen tent. There are levels of that restoration. So I want to take it back. Now, let's go 2 Samuel 6, verse 1. Now, remember, when they're going to carry the ark again, right? Here's what I want you to see. David again brought together out of Israel, highlight the word, chosen men. They were chosen. They were hand-selected. They were chosen. It wasn't just, let's get a group of people together. There was a meticulous, systematic approach of this company of people. There were chosen men. How many? How many? 30, Why 30,000? Because 30,000 men had lost their lives on the battlefield because priests weren't doing their job. So the first thing David does is he redeems innocent blood that had brought a curse on the land. Because in Leviticus it said, when you bring curses and defilements on the land, it will vomit you out. That's what Leviticus says. So David understands that principle. 
This is what I call territorial intercession. You can write that down. Point number one, prophetic, whatever. Key number one. This is territorial intercession. I love it. A lot of people think, man, that's weird. But the Bible is filled with it. Oh, if I had time. Joshua chapter 24. Why did they carry the bones of Joseph for 40 years in the desert? Only to plant them in the ground. They were making a prophetic statement. Returning the man to his inheritance. It was a prophetic act, territorial intercession that said this is God's inheritance in his land, not the Canaanites. How about Saul? Have a mirror this story. At the end of David's reign in 2 Samuel, there is a three-year famine on the land from the Gibeonite deception that comes back to haunt David. And what does he do? The Gibeonites want seven of Saul's sons to be murdered and exposed. David gives them to him. They kill him. David goes and digs up Saul's bones and his son Jonathan, the seven sons, and returns them back to the place where the treaty was made. Territorial intercession. Redeeming the land is very important. Why is it? Because I believe the land is almost more cursed than the people that live on it sometimes. And if the land is under a curse... It's unable to produce. If the land is unable to produce, then it's in bondage. And the environment is always hard. It's like, oh. But when the, when the fallow ground is broken up, my God, and God sends a plow from heaven to begin to break up the ground in the form of a faithful servant that is dedicated, that does not look to the left or to the right, man, the land produces again. The plow comes, pulls down the old structure, the old weeds, the old crop, recycles soil, fresh soil for the new crop so that new seed can be planted, so that fruit can come in the land, and that the people, my God, can benefit off of that. The land is very important. So, come on, David brought up 30,000 men. Now, look what he said, Baal of Judah. Who who knows what Baal is? Worship was back in the Old Testament. That wasn't good, was it? Sacrificing of children. Hebrew word for Baal is Lord or Master over. What does Judah mean? Praise. So there was a cap and a restriction on praise. But David said, I'm bringing up the ark. I'm bringing up the ark. Here's something else that he did. He made atonement for the past. He restored and realigned the people of God. If you read in verse 13, listen to this in 2 Samuel 6. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Every six steps, they would sacrifice a bull and a fatted calf. In 1 Chronicles 13, it gives you the exact number. Guess what that number is? Seven bulls, seven rams. This is a burnt offering and a fellowship offering. What's the difference? If you remember, the burnt offering was an offering wholly given to the Lord. It was an expression that our lives are wholly surrendered to God, and it was called the ascending offering. It's how we ascend in the Spirit to fellowship with the Lord. He was sacrificing that. The other was the fellowship offering, which was an offering of celebration and joy, rejoicing. The word Hebrew rejoice is to violently twirl. These two offerings commingling, coming together. But of course, hang around me for a little while. You're going to ask this whole number deal. So why seven? Why seven bulls? Why seven rams? The answer took me to a most unusual place. Go to Matthew chapter 1. I want to show it to you. My, mine's ripped out. Can you go to Matthew chapter 1? I'm missing that one. You get you another Matthew. Yeah. Matthew chapter 1. I, I literally was sitting with the Lord one day, and I was asking him, what was the significance? And, and there could maybe be a few other things, but this is what I felt the Lord guided me to. Matthew chapter 1. Do you know what Matthew chapter 1 is about? It's about the genealogy. There's a secret in that genealogy. Verse 17. 
And all those listed above included 14 generations from Abraham to David. Seven and seven is 14. Seven bulls and seven rams to cover 14 generations. My God. 14 generations of generational iniquity that could have stepped into the bride and to the body at that time. I believe that with everything in me. 14 generations. Why did David sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams? He could have done 1,000, 10,000, 100,000. Even Solomon did without number. Why said this is why I feel seven bulls and seven rams? Because David understood that the nation was stuck. They were stuck, and they couldn't move into the future unless they went and undid the past. And so somebody had to lay down and generationally intercede for the failure of carrying out the promises of God. Not only that, for 70 years there was no blood sacrifice around the ark. So David is shedding blood to give mercy to the nation so that God will not look at just the law, come on, but look at grace on the blood through the law. Seven bulls and seven rams. Woo! Every six steps they were doing it. That's a lot of sacrificing. So I, I, I thought, wow. So, but that's a I, that's a prophetic key for us. Atonement I, for the past. I really love too. It says, my Bible says, and David danced before the Lord with mm. all his might. So every time he made a sacrifice, he danced, and he did it wearing a priestly garment. So he was wearing. Wow. The ephod. So he was really going back to every step of order as the priestly. Yes. That takes us right into that third one. I want to hit this third one. What did David do? He restored and cleansed the priesthood. So he's doing territorial intercession to restore the land, the productivity of the land of Israel. So it can be a land flowing with milk and honey. He's atoning of the past. He's, he's interceding. He's realigning. The people of God back to God through his intercession. I have, we have so many stories, too, that we could personally in our journey, how we could share, how that's, we've just seen that happen. But I want to give these kind of things to you to begin to pray and explore with God. How can you step into this? Here's the third one. Personalized humility and holiness. Now, as Amber said, David wore the ephod. There's two meanings, I believe, to this. The first level of revelation is he didn't want the eyes of the nation on him. So he took off his kingly robes. He took off his right as king. He took off the crown. He took off everything that would distract or draw attention to himself. Identified with the people. Identified with every class in society. Got down in the midst. Got down in the crowd. Took out his harp and began to play. Before the Lord, leading the procession of the ark. Such a display of humility from a leader in the positional authority that he was, has no choice but to bring people together. That's what brings people together. When they see leaders that can begin to go low in that stature, so secure in who they are, that they can lay down the robes, and that they can lay down, what do you think Christ did when he came to the earth? He took off that nature, stepped into our world, identified with us, brings us all together. Whew. That's one level of the ephod. But here's the other level of the ephod. It's this redemption of the priesthood. Now, track with me. I'm going to get back to this generational intercession too. It ties all in. Go, remember, go back to Eli. Remember the prophecy. Eli. Your house, your house, your house is going to be cut short. That means everyone in your family line will die in the prime of your life. That is just not to Eli and his two sons. That's to the entire priesthood that would come forth later. How do you know that, Mike? Because in 1 Samuel... 22, 17, I believe it is, when King Saul 
is running after David. He runs into Nob. Now we're coming back to Nob. Comes back to Nob. Nob in Hebrew means the city of the priests. The priests lived in Nob. It was a Levitical priesthood town. There were a lot of priests. And the Bible says, how many did he kill? He killed, it's in that Samuel passage. But as I read it, I got to read it now. I got to read it because it's so good. This is what he said happened. Because it really comes to life when you see it. In verse 20, 1 Samuel 22, here it is, 18. So the king ordered Doag, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doag the Edomite turned down and struck down. That day killed 80 five men who wore the linen ephod, the priests. But listen, he also put to the sword of Nob the town of the priest with his men, women, and children because they were still under the prophecy of the man of God that said, none of your family line, they will all die in the prime. Of their life. But one escaped. And he hooked up with a guy named David. So when David put on the ephod. My God. He broke the generational curse. Over the priesthood bloodline. And he said no to that curse. And he instituted a perpetual priesthood. That built day and night worship to the Lord for 40 years. And the priesthood thrives and survives and functions. Woo! My God, he redeemed the priesthood when he put on the ephod. We need some people today that's going to put on the ephod. We need some of y'all to put on the ephod. We need some of you guys to raise up, stand up, and put on that ephod. Mm. He restores everything. I'm just kind of like blazed right now with the Lord. I just want to let that sink in for a moment. You see, David... He restored that priesthood through humility and by wearing that ephod. It was so powerful, so amazing. And he broke that prophecy. We're kind of wrapping up. I'm gonna, I want to share a story now that literally hits home. I don't think I've shared it here only with one or two people, but it fits right in well with here. We were at Regent. We were going to uh, visiting Amber's home church where she grew up out of. And that church, um, powerful church, powerful church. 2,000 members, uh, just a powerful church in Hampton Roads community. And we started, uh, you know, we were kind of attending there. We were going to several places. A little different, of course, we had been walking into the prophetic stream, the radical prayer and worship movement and revival and glory. And, and that church just was in a different stream. They were a little bit more seeker-sensitive or more conservative in their worship and, and really had a basis for souls and evangelism. Uh, very good. The pastor started the church, very good guy. He actually came from Dunn, North Carolina, went to the same Bible college we went to. Um, Amber knew him pretty well, and I, I got to meet him occasionally, more, more like acquaintances at, at a few meetings. Well, one Sunday morning, we're sitting there in the church. I kid you not, this is the truth. We're sitting in there, and the worship starts going. Now, usually it's kind of a pretty cut, cookie-cutter, you know. Well, this day in particular was unbelievable, and the presence of God began to fill the whole auditorium. And I could feel, now, you know, people weren't really cussing or raising hands, but I could feel so many people just wanted to explode. I wanted to explode. And, and, I, and I just said, Lord, what's happening right now? And the Lord came upon me, like the Spirit of the Lord came upon me and began to speak. And he said, Michael, I have a word for this church. And when I heard that, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it was so strong. I kid you not. I was like, I was asking the Lord, like, like do you want me to go up to the pastor? Like, like right now? He's on the stage. Like right now, tell him I have a word for the church. 
Like that's so not out of my comfort zone. I'm not, you know, we barely know each, we're not even members here. And it's just not normal there. There's no prophesying, prophetic flow. You don't interrupt the flow. Two, three services and one Sunday. So I, I, I start asking the Lord. I'm like, Lord, what do you want? And he starts downloading this prophetic word. And he starts telling me about the destiny of the church. He says, I want to free this church. He said, I want to give it a prophetic voice. I want to make it a prophetic voice in the nations. I want to send it to the nations. I want to do global evangelism, revival. I want to bring in a whole new wineskin. He said, but the leader has to make some changes in his leadership. And now I'm literally getting all this. And I'm like, so I sit down on my seat. And I'm like, really? Really, honey? <laughs> and I start writing it out in my journal. This is her pastor. She got saved out of this church. Brother baptized in this church. And the Lord tells me, you, you have to give the pastor a word. That if he doesn't make the changes, this is what he said, I'm going to break the strength of the house. Now, you know, <laughs> being on the other side of the coin now, usually you wouldn't counsel or encourage anybody to do that, especially to a senior pastor. But on that side, I, I, I had no motive in my heart. I just knew it was God. And so I said, okay. So I was like, do you want me to go up now? And I was like, you know, I had that feel. I almost felt like the Lord wanted me to go up now. But I, I just, I'm be honest, I was so fearful I couldn't do it. I just could not do it. I shut down. So I was like, okay, stop. The worship stopped. The pastor was lingering up on the service the whole time. I sit down in my chair. I'm like, okay. He was waiting. The Lord ends the word, and he says, I want you to know that what's happening in this church, the word I'm giving you is about Eli and his two sons. He said, Eli the priest has misguided love, and the two sons represents the leadership that needs to be changed up. And I want you to bring this word to him. <laughs> so I sit down. I can't be doing that. True story. I'm not, asking, note, right? I'm not exaggerating. I'm like literally telling you how it happened. He opens up the Bible that day. New Testament church. Very Acts 2 oriented small group. He says, today I'm going to preach a message on Eli and his two sons. How he had misguided love and it caused damage in the leadership of the temple or the sanctuary. Almost had a heart attack. I was like, and I was like, this is real. So I asked, I said, God, if you want me to see him, then make him run into me. Now, 2,000 people, when they disperse, it's like back door. It's a mob. It's mob. It's crazy. Never see him. He's always tangled with people up front. So I made it a point to beeline. So as soon as the service over, boom, I beeline. We were like in the back. I don't know how in the world. I don't know where this man came from. But he beelined and came to the other side, and we literally bumped into one another bumped into each other, and the only thing I could say was, he goes, hey, Mike, how are you? I have to meet with you Tuesday morning. That's all that came out of my mouth. He said, really? He's like, all right, I think we can make that work. Now, I'm carrying this with me. I call two people. I call a pastor friend, and I call a, I, I talk to a good friend at Regent I'm school with. Some of them give me some bad counsel. And they're like, you don't need to do that. That's a senior pastor. Who do you think you are? You're not a member of that church. So now I'm like backpedaling. I'm like, is this the Lord? And, you know, now I'm like really wrestling. That's a note, you know, stick to what God told you to do. You don't have to. There's some things you need counsel for. Some things you just got to do it. So, so that really hurt. So then finally, I, I wrestled with it. Here comes Tuesday morning. I drive out across town. I go to the church. Some of my friends, youth pastors there. They see me, and I never come there on a weekday. They see me walking in the office. They're like, Mike, what are you doing here? It's like I'm meeting with Pastor. And uh, they're like, really? And I was like, yeah. I'm like, okay. So I sit down. Pastor calls me in his office. Mike, good to see you. But I'm very curious. Why, why did you want to meet with me? Whew. So I was like, the only way to do this thing is to get it over with and read what I got. So I opened up my journal, and I said, Pastor Jim, remember this past Sunday? During worship, as soon as I said during worship, he cut me off right there. He said, stop. I mean, I kid you, he said, stop, don't talk. And I was like, oh, my gosh. He's I'm already getting rebuked. I'm not even got this thing out yet. He goes, you mean this Sunday at church? I said, yep. He said, let me ask you, do you have something for me? I said, yes. 
He said, I need to tell you something. Whew. He said, do you remember me lingering upon the stage? Worship kind of went somewhere that we're not used to. I didn't even know what to do. I said, yeah. He said, God spoke to me on the stage. He said, almost audibly, he spoke to me on stage. I said, what did he tell you? He said, get ready. I'm going to send a man with the word for your church. And you better listen to him because it's the word of the Lord. He looked at me, fell on his knees, and said, give it to me. I gave him everything. How long, Em? Was it? A year, not even? Less than 12 months. He had connected with a guy from International House of Prayer, Kansas City, who was in class with Amber in the Divinity Program. They mentored and bonded. He turns the entire church over to him. In the same month, they send missionaries to El Salvador, preach the gospel, and the doors begin to blow off the hinges. Whole leadership changed. Whole leadership changed. They are now a force in the nations of the earth. They have a prophetic edge to them, and they're doing all that God's wanting them to do, and they planted two or three campuses in the Hampton Roads area now. That pastor has so much respect for him. Yeah, and he's still going strong. In Goldsboro, North Carolina. He started a whole network, <laughs> and he's a senior pastor in Goldsboro. He moved his family back to North Carolina. So I, I, I want to. So it wasn't an ending for him. It was just a transition I, for the church. I just want to share that from my heart because, man, it's so Jesus. And there's encouragement for us because just like that man had to give that word to Eli and his two sons. But that thing set something into motion that set up this whole coming of David's tabernacle. Not only that, this thing about Eli and his sons, man, it, it just really got to me that if Amos said in the last days I'm going to rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David, then I believe the conditions are going to be like they were before it was rebuilt. So I believe it's an encouragement for us, but at the same time, it's also a challenge to not mishandle the presence, not mishandle the priesthood, not mishandle the purity, and to really be consecrated to the Lord in this season, in this hour. Amen? Amen. Jesus. That's enough. I'm over. So, perfect, good spot to stop. Stand with me. Amen? Come on. Jesus. So, I just want to encourage you guys, David's Tabernacle will be back next Wednesday, next couple of Wednesdays. Next week, we're going to get in more of the infrastructure of day and night prayer and how he, uh, how he took a pattern out of heaven to bring into the earth. Amen? Lord, we just thank you right now. We just thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for your revelation, for your presence, for your spirit. Father, I thank you for Global River Church. I thank you that it is a church that has a prophetic voice to the nations. I thank you, Lord, that it is a gateway church that you have assigned and that you have called and dedicated to this city. And, Lord, I thank you for every person a part of this place, here and not here, God, here that's been here, that's sown in. Lord, I just thank you for them, Lord. And, God, as one, as one people, we turn to you, Lord. We want to fulfill your assignment. We want to fulfill that mandate. I believe you want to turn this house into a Davidic tabernacle where there is night and day worship and prayer, unending adoration and intercession, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But also, it will be a house that extends and expands into the community, into the nation. That there will be an outreach voice, a prophetic voice of revival and awakening that will transcend and transform the city and the region. God, we say, do it here. Do it now. Do it with us, Father. So we thank you and we bless your holy name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Come on, let's hear it. Okay, thank you, Pastor Mike. Woo! Praise God.